0: Welcome to After Awakening. Here, we discuss enlightenment and the greater spiritual reality with meditation masters and spiritual teachers. Hello, everybody. We are here with Dr. Kate Crosby, a Buddhist studies professor at King's College in the United Kingdom, a Pali expert, and the author of Esoteric Theravada, a recently released book on the ancient practices of Boran Kamatana. Kate, how are you doing?
1: Well, thank you. Nice to see you.
0: Nice, nice to see you too. I'm looking forward to, to our talk. I have been practicing in the Theravada tradition for a decade. And the things that I read in Esoteric Theravada, one, it was just an incredible history of Southeast Asian Buddhism over the past few centuries. And the effect of colonialism on Thailand, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and and how that affected Theravada Buddhism and, and the monastic orders. I had no idea that there was a meditation tradition outside of the orthodoxy outside of the Mahasi method, outside of the Thai forest tradition methods, I thought that everything outside of that was just considered like ritualistic magic, which you explain in great detail in your book. Before, before we get into Boran Kamatana and what this whole old meditation system is, I just wanted to to start with, how did you find yourself just drawn into this world of ancient Buddhism and Pali and Sanskrit?
1: When I was an infant, my mother would go and visit friends in London, and while they were at work during the day, she would take me around museums. And in the Victorian Albert Museum, there's a courtyard garden in the centre, and there used to be a nine foot, I think nine foot seemed huge to me at the time, quan Yin. And I could not be taken away from this quan Yin. So I was completely obsessed. And so after that, my mother... Took me to anything to do with Buddhism, anything to do with India, so that I gradually gained more and more familiarity and interest. And then when I um, started practicing, I wanted to know more about the original teachings. And so when I went to university, I decided I would do Sanskrit in Pali in order to read Buddhist texts in the original languages.
0: I read the Bodhi translations, for example, and then the, before that there were the Rise Davis translations. But being able to read the Pali and the, and the Sanskrit yourself, would you say that the actual translations that we're all looking at and reading are as accurate as they could be? Do you think there's so much that still gets lost in translation from Pali to English?
1: I think most translations that I've read are pretty good. I think it's not about getting lost in translation, but sometimes we don't see things. So, for example, in the Buran practices, embryology is important. Now, embryology is important in uh, several parts of several traditions of Buddhism, but I had always taken them as a metaphor for spiritual growth, something like that. Then when I started looking more closely, I realized that they are actually really taking transformative processes um, that are used in embryology seriously. Then when I look back at text that I had read before, I think, oh, there it is. It was there all the time. So sometimes when we learn something new, we then start seeing it in the text and we think, why did we miss this before? I'll give another example. I've seen some really interesting work by archaeologists in the past two decades to do with the involvement of Buddhism in water technology. I didn't know anything about it. Now, when I read the text, I start noticing references to water technology. I just blank them out. I just miss them. So I think sometimes we read over things and just don't see the detail that is there because we're not attuned to it. I think that happens a lot.
0: So what is Boran Kamatana?
1: So Boran Kamatana, it means the old meditation. So Kamatana, just meditation practice or meditation exercises or tradition. And Boran is the Pali word, Purana, but in Thai or Boran. And in the 1920s and 30s, monk scholars in Thailand started publishing old meditation manuscripts. That were different from the new meditations coming in at that time. And so they use the term Buran to refer to these old methods. So before that documentation, it was just meditation. But at that point, the term Buran gets used to distinguish between the old, more, more traditional material and this new material. And this old material is different in that it Aims to transform the body. So you develop your meditation experiences, but then you incorporate them into the body. So it's both a physical and a mental or spiritual transformation. It's a complete transformation. Whereas the modern practices tended to focus more on just changing the mentality, the cognitive side if you can say that it's very hard to get the right terminology
0: so the the main distinction is that the baran methods is actually do with transforming the body why was this left out of the meditation methods and techniques moving forward in that time period why have we not heard about these transformative physical practices in Theravada
1: yeah thank you so I think we can look at that in two ways so if we look at Abhidhamma. So Abhidhamma is the part of Theravada Buddhism that looks at causality, looks at what everything's made up for, up, up of, and how it interrelates, and takes really seriously the idea of change and that we can direct change, and so it looks at the causal processes to go from being an ordinary person to being an arahat, enlightened person, and it looks at three aspects that make up the individual looks at our form our rupa our consciousness our chitta and the components that make up consciousness the chetasika and it looks at how those interrelate so it's very holistic and it sees how you can uh, keep you can replace our negative mental states with more positive ones and progress on a path but it also takes seriously the idea that this will change you physically so I would say Baranka Matana has this very holistic approach now in the 19th and early 20th century under uh, colonialism both French colonialism and British colonialism the physical domain was challenged yeah you've got the the colonial conquest of the physical domain and through military things and medicine and there's a a competition over that and local physical prowess gets suppressed also a crisis that comes so there's a crisis that comes in that people think buddhism is going to die out Mm. and so people who turn to meditation so if we take the example of burma So, the really important monks who revived meditation at that time, like Lady Sayadore, they sought to fast track meditation so that you could gain enlightenment quickly now while Buddhism was still available. And in doing that, they focused on vipassana, on insight meditation, leaving aside samatha so much, so the more physical side. So, there became this very strong focus on Buddhism as a mind science, leaving aside all the physical sciences that also went with Buddhism. So you've got these two things working together, really. Another thing that happens, particularly in Thailand, where Buran Kamatana was so important, is that under the reforms in the 19th century, Abhidhamma gets sidelined and regarded as scholasticism, and there's a strong influence from global scientific thinking, global technology. So the familiarity with Abhidhamma declines. So where Buran Kamatana had survived, it it stops being recognised for what it is. And at the same time, you've got the rise of meditation traditions in Burma that sideline the physical side anyway. So we've got an emphasis on mental culture on the one hand, becoming increasingly popular and the lack of recognition where Baran Kamala exists of what it's actually doing.
0: In your book, there were many different Baran texts that were referenced. Where were these, who found them? Have you read them your, yourself and is the path to enlightenment actually revealed? in those specific texts and findings
1: yeah so the evidence for Baran Kamatana is found in many manuscripts hundreds of manuscripts and also in some inscriptions and fortunately in some publications so there were some very important publications in Thailand in the 1930s that recorded not only the manuals but also the dates and who they belonged to so this allows us to track Baranka Matana down to at least the 16th century. So we, have, we can track those lineages. And the, in, particularly in Laos, that same lineage continues from the very early 16th century until 1974 on the cusp of the Marxist revolution there. So that means that Baranka Matana is the longest living tradition of Theravada meditation It's the longest you can document. We can only document other meditation practices to revivals in the 19th century. It may be that the lineages are longer, but we can't trace them. So what happens in the revivals is that people went back to Pali Pali canonical texts and they made sure their practices followed the canonical texts. And if there were living practices, they adapted them to those texts. What they therefore missed out on often was the Abhidhamma and particularly Abhidhamma commentarial practices and ideas of how you bring about transformation. So those canonical texts were published in the 19th century and early 20th century, so they're very accessible. But when you look at manuscript collections, you find hundreds of manuscripts about meditation which show actual practice not just more general accessible material some of those don't have any detail in they might just be a kind of list of diagnostic symptoms that you might say of what a meditation practitioner is experiencing that the teacher can check off in the middle of the 18th century this type of practice was exported from ayutthaya in thailand to sri lanka and that's been really useful for providing us with evidence. In Sri Lanka, they had a crisis in the 18th century, partly to do with the Dutch presence. And so they revived Buddhism there. And, they, and Ayutthaya, the king of um, Siam, he sent three missions to Sri Lanka. And the middle one was a meditation mission. And the Sri Lankan monks who studied with the Siamese teachers there, they recorded their advanced practices. And those manuscripts in which they recorded their advanced practices are still extant today. So there we can see how these practices follow the Abhidhamma path of transformation, lots of detail. What we don't see in those practices are the early stages, how you develop those meditation experiences early on. To that, we have to turn to living traditions, so we, when we're trying to understand this system as a whole, we have to bring together the evidence from different places.
0: What do you mean by living traditions? The Dhammakaya tradition and then what yep. else?
1: So most practices, so during these reforms in the 19th and 20th century, a lot of Barangka Matana practice was sidelined or even suppressed. So, for example, King Monkut had practiced it when he was a monk, but he found it too complex. It uh, didn't match with what he'd seen in the Sutta and Vinaya texts, and he didn't wasn't keen on Abhidhamma. And he was a leading light in reform. People turned to him as the remaining Buddhist king, as kings elsewhere were usurped during colonial, colonialism. So he he had a really huge influence. So the Practices that survive tend to be fairly marginal and sometimes adapted. Now, Thailand had a huge influence on Cambodia as well. So in the places that modernized in Cambodia, they also tended to be influenced by Thai reform. But these practices survived in rural areas and they also survived in Laos. But those areas were the areas affected by Marxist revolution in the 1970s. And so at that point, these practices were pretty much wiped out. There was a bit of a revival in Cambodia after democracy was brought back in the 1990s. And then there are a few pockets of living tradition in Thailand. There may also be some living practice in Sri Lanka. One of the things I hope will happen is that people who have a practice that relates to this will start talking to each other to try and map. This more clearly. Mm-hmm. So in Thailand, we have a living tradition that goes back to the 18th century at Watrata Sitaram. In Cambodia, there are a few temples that practice, but in all these, and also there's of course the Dhammakaya, there's a temple that has a, a living practice in Ayutthaya, the, the town of Ayutthaya now. To my, as far as my understanding goes, all of these practices are simplified or modernized to some extent so the simplification that we have in the development of vipassana as part of the revival of meditation in the 19th and 20th century there's a parallel process of simplification i think in buran kamatana as we have it nonetheless those practices show us how to get started because I'm not an advanced practitioner in these traditions, I don't know the extent to which the detail and the, all the steps that we find in these 18th century texts are still practiced today. So that's something for, I think, practitioners who are also interested in scholarship to write about.
0: Uh, absolutely. And these texts that you're referencing, are they all How many of them are translated into English or is it still in Sinhalese and Pali? (laughs) I'm
1: just trying to think. So I think that most texts are untranslated. Obviously, I know that, but there's a little bit of translation going on. So, in fact, in the uh, late 19th century, Anagarika Dharmapala, so he's the leading light of the Buddhist revival in Sri Lanka, he brought a manuscript to England. And he handed it over to T. W. Riss Davis, who was the president of the Pi Text Society, and he edited it. And twenty years later, it was translated. So, the one of the earliest meditation texts published in and translated was one of these texts. But they didn't recognise it because they didn't know what was go- what the text meant. So that there we have a translation, a pretty early translation of one of these texts. But overall, they remain in Pali and vernacular languages. There was amazing work done in from the 1970s onwards by a French scholar called François Bizot and other colleagues of his at École Française d'Extrême-Orient in Cambodia and Laos and Thailand. And, and François Bizot he came across this practice by chance. He was married to a Cambodian woman and his mother-in-law was practicing um, these methods. And he started documenting them. And he did so at the, just before the Khmer Rouge period. And he documented both practice and oral tradition and also texts. So he has translated some of these texts into French, which is very useful. And then more recently, there have been a number of PhDs, not yet published, that have translated some of these texts. We also have, obviously, translations from Dhammakaya practice and early, so in the first half of the 20th century, people who studied under Longpo Sot of Wat Patnam. So there's, so there's, Here and there, there is material and it would be really good if this material was brought together. So my book focuses more on the history, the disappearance and how I think this practice worked as a whole. What we really need now is work on the practices that focus more on the practices and also the differences between them, because this isn't a single practice. This is this type of meditation was everywhere in the Theravada world. So of course it's going to be, just as we have different lineages of Vipassana meditation or Thai forest tradition. So we have these different lineages and it would be really interesting to study the differences between them and the processes they use to bring about change in the individual.
0: So fascinating, so fascinating. One of the essential points I got from Esoteric Theravada and the Buran Kamatana practice you're describing is the building of a Buddha body within one's own physical body. Could you talk about that?
1: Yes, I'd love to. So the when you practice Bangaanca Matan, you start by developing you start with rituals actually of devotion and planning what you're going to do. You usually begin by doing some kind of rituals, some offerings and planning what you're gonna try and do and then you start by invoking particular experiences. So, this might be the early stages of jhana. In Barankamatana, Matana, they're broken down into minute stages, and those stages correspond to aspects of our consciousness. So, in Pali, this is called the Chaitasika. Cetis- and in Barankamatana, Matana, they associate different stages of consciousness with Nimitta. Now, Nimitta means a sign, and it's you- normally A light, a kind of light experience of light, maybe a physical sensation. And in Baranka Matana, these are taken as diagnostics of the stage of experience that you've reached. And after you have developed facility in these Nimitta, you bring them down into the body and you combine them in the body. And so you are, so the Nimitta are representing the qualities and then these qualities that you're seeking to to achieve are combined into the body to create an enlightened being within.
0: And is there any indication how long that takes from the text that you've looked at? (laughs) I'm
1: going to say a little bit more about the nimitta first. So I just want to say that the nimitta practices are, so the early stages, are different in different traditions. So we can see that in some traditions you have to visualize what you're told to visualize, whereas in others you're not told what to expect, and these experiences arise spontaneously. So how long do these practices take? Well, the, even the early stages are very variable. So I've heard of people who continue practicing with no experiences until they've been going for about 20 years. So there's a very patient practitioner. I, I think I'm more reward needy. But then we these manuscripts in Sri Lanka are really useful so you so say one of the texts i've been looking at it has nearly 4000 verses and each verse contains 20 instructions compacted into code so if we say that each verse is about a day's meditation work you can see that this could take a few years to complete so this is a very long Practice that is meant to be taking you from being an ordinary mortal, you know, made up of greed, hatred, and delusion, all these problematic mental states, through the positive mental states, the skillful mental states, up to the purified mental states of an enlightened being, and then the physical states that go with that. So, a very long process. And of course, how long it takes different individuals is going to depend on their previous development, how ready they are, how the teaching goes and what they've got access to.
0: The masters of the Boran Kamatana that you've met personally, what were they like and where did you encounter them?
1: I So most of my work started with textual work and then I have done small amounts of practice with teachers in Cambodia and uh, Thailand and then earlier on actually with people from how to say what people like I have to say one of the (laughs) things I noticed early on was smooth skin I was really intrigued by how people who do this practice seem to look very young so (laughs) very youthful and I so one of my so a teacher in Cambodia that I've practiced with when I first met him I actually thought he was really young and then I found out he's older than me. I would say that um, pretty modest as well. Because this practice is endangered, I've really wanted teachers to almost advertise it. And they always say no. It's if people's karma brings them to the practice. No. And of course, I, I, because since the revival of Buddhism in Cambodia, Vipassana has become very popular there. Not... Mm. Cambodia's own traditions. So I feel anxious that this practice will disappear. We've already mentioned how long this practice can take. It can take years to do. Um, It is usually done traditionally in Cambodia, it's done after the rice harvest for nine days and then for the three months of the rainy season. So for for Pangsa. And so that's quite a lot of commitment where and you don't normally do it when you're not with your teacher early on. So you're supposed to be doing it while you're with a teacher so that you re- can report your experiences and they can question question your experiences and test them and give you the next stage. So that's completely unlike modernised meditation practice where you can be doing it anywhere. You can do it for five minutes a day. So there is a real risk here that these practices will die out. And that means that we have a problem with having teacher lineages. I know that Damakaya obviously is very popular, it's very different. But I think to understand the system as a whole, we need to see the different lineages of this tradition survive. And those that aren't really known about outside of themselves, we need to know about those too. At the moment, we're too dependent on textual sources.
0: Right, absolutely. One of the unfortunate, maybe the scholars watching this will be upset that I say this, but I find it unfortunate (laughs) that every major debate comes down to what is in the book. If it's not in the book, it doesn't exist. If it's not in the book, it's heresy. This is one of the main criticisms of Dhammakaya that we're talking about entering these Dhamma bodies, these subtle bodies, higher bodies, and that this isn't so blatantly explained in the canon, that's one of the main criticisms that that we get. As a scholar and, and practitioner that has seen this within the Dhammakaya Temple, but also outside of it, how strong are the parallels? Because I can see how some of these traditions would be, they would lean more towards Taoism, towards developing an immortal fetus. And that seems quite different than what's emphasized in in the Dhammakaya Temple. What's your, your take on all of that?
1: As far as I can tell, Baranca Matana's practice relates to the understanding of change that we find in Abhidhamma, and particularly the Abhidhamma that's developed by the fifth century of the Common Era. So it's about those physical and mental changes that take place on the path. At the same time, trying to work out how change comes about, you see that there are parallels between other sciences or technologies that bring about change. In my book, I mention, I look at how grammar, the science of grammar, which was very important in ancient India, how obstetrics, so the treatment of the baby within the womb, and at chemistry, so purification of mercury and gold. These sciences have methods for bringing about change that actually use the same mathematics that's in Abhidhamma. And so we can see the kind of same parallels between them and the same sense that you can use catalysts to bring about change through substituting the thing you want to get rid of. So in the case of Buddhism, the unskillful mental states and bring in the skillful mental states and then the purified mental states. And then you're using this to change impurities in the body. So for me, it looks as if, Bharanka Matana develops within Abhidhamma, so within Theravada, drawing on understandings of how to bring about change that are out there in society. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that the medicine underlying, so the idea of the body in um, ancient Indian medicine, that understanding of the body and the medical texts are universal. so these spread throughout Asia and we know they spread to the Middle East and into East Asia as well. So Tibetan Buddhism and Barang kamatana are using the same medical texts. they're using the same idea of the body. I don't think there's an exchange between them directly but you can see parallels develop. Now I don't know enough about Chinese religion about Taoism to know if we've got the same thing going on there. But this idea of changing the, the, the body, the, the mind and body, and using ideas of embryological development and using ideas of how to bring about a deathless state, the parallels in them, are they parallels? Why are there those parallels? Are they developing independently? Are they influencing each other? Or are the div- other sciences like medicine and chemistry, which after all are sciences that not only improve life, but also bring about income. So these are technologies that spread. Are these the reason why we see the parallels between them?
0: Being in the Dhammakaya tradition, we're told that Longpu had discovered the the Dhammakaya body within. He had been practicing meditation and there was a namitta that was a glass sphere. That was outside of his body, and it had reached his nostril. It went into his body. The sphere expanded, and then there were these subtle bodies, and eventually, dhammakaya bodies. What was the tradition behind longbu? I remember in Esoteric Theravada, there's a mentioning of fifty or so masters of Ayutthaya that were doing similar practices. What's the background on all that?
1: Yes, yeah, so we can find similar practices to. Lungpo practice throughout Barang Kamatana, so as I've mentioned, going back to the 16th century, his specific practice seems to parallel practices ascribed to 56 teachers of Ayotya in the 18th century. Now, the work behind that, making that connection, has been done by Pibun chumpa Paisan at Mahidon University. And he has tracked that down looking at the different manuals that were published in the 1930s. So by comparing the details of the meditation, so the meditation tradition and what we can see in those manuals, that's the conclusion he's reached. Those are and he's done it by looking at the details of the Nimitta.
0: And this is all in Thai, not in English?
1: Pipun Chimpu is published in English, but those publications are in Thai and yeah some of them are very hard to read but yeah they're... now we know that he studied at different temples including at Wat Ratchasitaram which has a lineage of this tradition that goes back to the Sangharat, the Sangharat, so the supreme patriarch of Thailand in the 18th century so after the sack of ayutthaya by the burmese important monks the tradition to Tamburi and then to Bangkok. So Tamburi has several temples that are associated with this tradition and have lots of manuscripts connected with that. As far as I know, the only living tradition in Tamburi is at Wat Raja Sitaram, but Longpur studied at different temples. And in fact, he was influential in the publications in the 1930s because he had discussions with the people who published them, so was able to help them understand the practice.
0: In Vajrayana, there's in the practice of highest yoga tantra, there's deity yoga, where a person visualizes themselves as the deity in the deity's dimension. Did you find this to be similar at all to Boran, or are they quite different? Is Boran more about building the Buddha body within the embryo as opposed to visualizing the body as a Buddha? Yes.
1: So although visualization is used in some of the lineages of matana I think this is much more about building the body within. So as far as I see it, matana follows the Abhidhamma path step by step. So in Abhidhamma, you are constantly, so your mental states and your body are constantly being replaced. So everything's impermanent. In fact, everything's momentary and there's constant change. So if you want to direct the change, you have to bring in the substitutions you want rather than the ones that might just happen if you didn't try to make positive change. So in Barangka Matana, you are gradually bringing in all those positive elements step by step, combining them and transforming yourself into this enlightened being and that's rather different from visualizing yourself as the enlightened being. On the other hand tantric practice is also very detailed and it's not just a matter of identification there's a whole process of transformation so you can see that they are both going through transformation. There is a an important question that occurs in medicine as well as in Buddhism, which is when you, so if we take from the medical perspective, when you try to make a healthy being, are you creating something new or are you discarding impurities and things that obscure the fundamental, pure inner being that is originally there? If, so there's the, that's in medicine, which are you doing? And I think that exists in Buddhism as well. Are you revealing a pure inner state that is already there, or are you constructing a new pure state that wasn't there? In both cases, it means you've got the potential for transformation within and you can reach the end goal. But philosophically, they're different, aren't they? And this is where we come into problems of whether. So, of anatman, no self. So, if we take the anatman concept, then that takes us more towards the idea that you're constructing something that isn't originally there. Yeah. You know? So, this is why, if we take the model of purification, so if we think of Chittimatra Buddhism, this, it, it runs into this problem of are they positing that there's a self? No. and I haven't followed them in detail but I get the impression that there's been a similar debate in relation to Dhammakaya practice and, and statements within Dhammakaya.
0: Absolutely one of the main objections or one of the main criticisms that Payuto made of the Dhammakaya practice was that Bu did posit that there is a true self, actual mm. true self. So Having studied Pali and been in in the Theravada world for as long as you have, what's your take on no self and and true self? Some monks say absolutely there's no self. And other monks say Buddha said there's no self in the five aggregates. And he was very ambiguous. In the Gota Sutta, I believe, he was asked, is there a self? And he didn't answer. What's your your take on this very important point in Buddhism?
1: I would hate to attempt to try. So if advanced meditators are debating it, what can I possibly say on this subject? Right. <laughs> I do think there are some really interesting details to the understanding of consciousness that I haven't studied enough. And in fact, one of the great pleasures of having published this book as, is that people with far better knowledge of Abhidhamma, but also of Sutta texts, are coming to me and saying, have you seen this particular sutta that has this interesting discussion of al-basara, and so so, um, like a luminosity of consciousness, and so I'm really learning. uh, But I wouldn't dream to have a view on something that's so fundamental, and yet so much only, it's something that's only available to advanced practitioners.
0: Great answer. Great answer. In in the Baran practice, in the texts and manuals that you've read, what is the end goal? What is the end goal of the practice and how does that come about? So
1: the end goal of the practice is to take yourself from impure mental states through the whole pathway. So if we follow Abhidhamma, or whole pathway from unskillful mental states to purified mental states, and then further to create a physical form that is produced of these purified mental states so it's very holistic it's not just changing the mind it is changing everything there's a question for me that i don't know the answer to which is about what happens then are you changed within this lifetime does this new form occur on death and I think there's the, there is different evidence in different texts and oral traditions. Really interesting. Of course, I myself, I'm just at the kindergarten stage of meditation. I don't know, but I think it's a really interesting question. And I'm hoping it's going to emerge more clearly as these texts are discussed and studied more openly. One thing to bear in mind is that this is an esoteric tradition particularly at the advanced stages. And that has also been one of the reasons why people haven't recognised it for what it is, because it wasn't publicly accessible in the same way. So a lot of this is still to be found out and discussed publicly. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier about criticism that this, these Practices aren't found in, for instance, the Satipatthana Sutta or something that we might hope to see them in. All the terminology is uh, classic Abhidhamma and a lot of it is found in the Satipatthana Sutta and places like that. But the practices themselves, how you do them, that's not found in those texts. In the Visuddhimagga, which a lot of people, so the path of purification by Buddhaghosa, which a lot of people take as the standard of Theravada orthodoxy, in that text it mentions secret texts passed on from teachers to students. And the Dhammapala who commented, the commentator on Buddhaghosa, he interprets that as referring to meditation texts. So it looks as if Alongside the canon, the exoteric materials, there already existed in, certainly in the 5th century, the ninth century, meditation tech that were handed down within teaching traditions, meditation teaching traditions that were regarded as esoteric. So that means that we've got, thankfully, we've got texts that describe meditation in quite a lot of detail. In the canon, so that we can read those easily and in the commentary period. But we've also got the existence alongside that of practitioner manuals, and we don't know what was in them, and manuscripts don't tend to go back that far. So there's always going to be additional material that practitioners use that isn't going to be there in the canon. And that makes working out what's orthodox or what was available at the time of the Buddha or at the time of Buddhaghosa, very hard to assess.
0: In the Sa- Satipatthana Sutta, there's the, the line that, that goes body as body, right? Mind as mind, feeling as feeling, because you're a Pali expert. Is that an accurate rendition of, that, of the Pali? Is it actually body as body, feeling as feeling, or is it body in body, feeling in feeling?
1: It's the seventh case. So it's hard to, without understanding what the teachers would say or what commentary says, you can't tell. So it, both wow. translations seem a reasonable translation. Yeah, yeah. One of the difficult difficulties, of course, even with quite detailed texts, quite often you still need a practitioner, a teacher, to explain what those texts mean. So even with Abhidhamma texts, which are very detailed, how that correlates to practice is obviously gonna need the guidance of somebody more experienced when one is learning to do meditation.
0: You mentioned that some of the Burana elements are in the Satipatthana Sutta or in these other suttas. In the Anapanasati Sutta, there's a reference to a body, a reference to a body within, but it's interpreted as the, the body of the breath. Like the entire the entire duration of the breath as a Kaya. Is that <laughs> uh, yes. think, what are we talking more, about here?
1: I think you're more familiar with that than me. So tell us more about it.
0: This is the thing. And when I read the Anapanasati Sutta, there's a reference to a body. It's just it's talking about the breath, the different the tetrads mm-hmm. for the Anapanasati, and then there's this mention of this body. And the other Theravada teachers say that's referring to the, the breath as a body. And I'm thinking, isn't there a Pali word for breath as opposed to using the Pali word kaya for mm. breath? So I'm, but see, this, see, I'm in the Dhammakaya tradition. So yeah. that could be clouding my perception and interpretation of mm. the Sutta. So I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to bring meditators from different traditions together to look at that. So you're right. So if one is inside a tradition, it can be quite difficult and particularly a tradition that's been accused of being unorthodox. It can be, so when you read a text, you can be looking for something to either refute or affirm your own position. So one of the um, things I've been trying to look at in relation to is Kamatana is the broader picture. So when I mentioned terminology that's shared, what I find in Barakam is that most terms used are classic Abhidhamma. They are completely orthodox. So we're not, and the process of transformation is Abhidhamma, so that's completely orthodox. So the question isn't about orthodoxy, the question then becomes about orthopraxy. Is the practice a tradition? Now you can take Two ways of looking at this. So, one is what is orthopraxy? If you've got the doctrine there, surely the practice just needs to be what works for bringing about those changes. But when it's contested, of course, we then look and try and work out. So, the practices may not be mentioned in the canon, but they parallel developments in technology that started to emerge in the early centuries of the Common Era. And if we think about technology, how many of us today use our mobile phone to practice meditation? You can, so many apps you can use to experience jhana, to guide you through vipassana. Does that mean they're not orthodox? You're using a bit of technology that certainly wasn't there at the time of the Buddha. So when I see these parallels between Baranka Matana and developments in medicine and in chemistry and in understanding of how language works so that's the, the science behind traditional grammar does that make so and Baranka Matana uses the same methods does that make those methods unorthodox or non orthodox practice or are they just harnessing developments in technology to ensure the desired change comes about
0: in the section of your book on generator of grammar that really went over my head. I just, I kind of <laughs> just went through it and, and skipped over. It. it didn't make much sense to me. But in the Baran practices, there's is there use of polysyllables with namitta Are those mm. brought into the body internally the same way that that's done in the in the Vajrayana tradition?
1: The work by Francois Bizot on Cambodian Buddhism is really important because it shows that Baranka Matana isn't just meditation in isolation. It exists within a broad culture and myth- mythology. And so there are texts that relate to Baranka Kamatana that deal with the origin of the universe, deal with protective practices, right. and give us myths really interesting. And The power of Pali as a sacred language is really important in that. And so language, Pali language, ends up being almost a creative principle in its own right. And this, I think, is based on the way language is magical. Here we are. I've got things going on in my head. I say them. They reach your ears. Something then goes on in your head. This extraordinary back and forth. So language as a transformative principle is amazing and it is harnessed in Baranka Matana and it's harnessed in a number of ways. One is by the use of syllables representing something bigger than themselves. Another is just the way traditional grammar constructs language from roots of meaning. By adding certain processes it changes those roots of meaning into actual words and we see that same process of starting with equality and Adding processes and then developing that into the change within the individual. So there's this kind of parallel between going from your basic, your original meaning, your original sense to the real thing out there that uses these stages of change. So language is a model of change. And what's really interesting about language is that it is both in the consciousness. And it's physical and it uses the physical. So it's and it mediates between the two. And so if we're trying to use changes of consciousness to change our physical body, you can see why language is an important model.
0: Fantastic. Well, we're almost at the end of the at the end of the hour, so I'll ask I'll ask a final question and and then we'll we'll have to wait until our next conversation. But having studied pali for so long what is your take on the end goal of buddhism particularly theravada there's the majority of the theravada world believes that nirvana nibbana is extinction it's nothingness it just is a vacuum but in for example the Yogacara bhumi shastra of the mahayana teachings maitreya dictating this to bodhisattva sangha if this is all accurate and true that the cessation of perception and feeling is the ninth samadhi Extinction is a ninth samadhi. It's not actual Buddhahood. Seeing how the Mahayana and the vajrayana always try to subordinate the Theravada teachings and the earlier teachings, it, it would make sense that you would find this. But what is your take on having looked through the Pali and the commentaries and the Abhidhamma? What is your take on Nibbana? Is it extinction in accordance with the texts? Do we have no idea because there wasn't much description about it? Or is it actually a dimension or something?
1: Mm, I would love to know the answer to that question. I think we all would. So, repeating the text and you can repeat different texts, yeah, won't help us here, really. But it's a nice question to end with. <laughs> and speaking of extinction, I've been watching my battery decline. So, the fuel in my battery is getting pretty low. So, I'm very glad we got to the end before my battery entered Nibbana. <laughs> <laughs>
0: till so the till the battery till the battery drains and blows out just vanishes. I, I, I loved your answers because most scholars and people that I would talk to would just say clearly this is what the Buddha meant and every time I've asked you one of these major questions you've just said it's really I have no idea and it's really I'm not even gonna <laughs> try to answer that question <laughs> which is... Maybe I'm just not a very good scholar in the barranca matana,
1: they refer to it as the deathless state yeah or deathlessness so so that it's the deathless state that we're trying to attain in these practices
0: in in the Quran is there any indication of what the deathless state is
1: as I mentioned when we were talking before it seems to me that there are divergent ideas of this even in, even
0: in in the Quran
1: yeah is it something that happens in this life is it something you enter on death. Yeah. So that's an area I really still want to unpack, or if not me, I hope others will after me.
0: Dr. Kate Crosby, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your knowledge about Boran Kamatana. Everyone check out her book, Esoteric Theravada. I just read it last night. It was incredible, deep history of uh, Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, and in the region. And the whole story about having to combat and struggle against colonialism is really explained in detail in your book. So just wanted to say thank you for coming on and thank you for all the work that you do.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for updates on future guests and shows. You can sign up to our newsletter as a thank you. We'll send you a 10 minute video on getting out of duality which has some very very useful meditation pointers so go to ryanjburden.com and click on get started thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode